Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. I'm going to look in detail at Paul's commission in verse 18. Remember, Paul is speaking to Agrippa and Festus. We talked about the broader context of this trial last week and the overall movement of Paul's speech. But Paul repeats the words that Jesus spoke to him on the Damascus road. We'll read starting in verse 12. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, then they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this recipe for evangelism. That you would give us the boldness, not only to understand it, but to put it into practice. Give us the words to speak to help the people that we meet along to the next step. Father, we pray these things, asking that you would help us to concentrate on your word, help me to speak boldly and accurately. Thank you for the inheritance that we will share among those who are sanctified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I will say up front that this sermon is largely based on the work of evangelist Jim Wilson in his little booklet, Taking Men Alive. That's where I first encountered the idea that verse 18 of Acts 26 is a step-by-step guide to evangelism. I think that's an important insight for several reasons, but maybe the most important one is that it makes evangelism accessible. If you are trying to communicate to somebody what the Christian faith is, you quickly run into the problem that the Christian faith is as big as your whole life. If you're trying to tell someone how to be a Christian, you're saying, this is the work of a lifetime. And I don't know how to put the work of a lifetime into 30 seconds or even into 30 minutes. So I'm not sure where to even start. Christ's commission to Paul says... Here's where to start. Start with opening eyes. If you look at this, it's easy to think that it's not sequential where it's one step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, but rather that Jesus has given Paul five different ways of describing the same work, which is the work of evangelism. I don't think that's the case, though, because especially the first two here, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins. So not the first two, rather number one and number four. 
if you say, I am going to open your eyes. The goal of this conversation is to be an eye opener for you. Is somebody going to understand that that means the same thing as, I am going to give you forgiveness of sins. The goal of this conversation is that you will walk away with your sins forgiven. That is, is the ordinary hearer going to think that getting your eyes opened and getting your sins forgiven are simply two ways of describing the same reality? They sound like two different operations. They might be different steps in the same process that we call the process of conversion or getting saved, but they are not identical steps. Having your sins forgiven is different than having your eyes opened. The other thing I would point out is that if you just search the book of Acts for the word forgiveness, Paul only preaches forgiveness in one place. Paul preaches forgiveness uh, right at the beginning in Pisidian Antioch. He doesn't get there in the other places that he goes. It's almost as though Paul does understand this as a sequential thing. And many of his sermons get to the opening eyes part, or maybe turning them from darkness to light, or at most to the power from the power of Satan to God. Paul starts way earlier when he starts by attempting to open eyes. Modern evangelism often begins with the notion that you can have your sins forgiven. Not much of an offer to people who have no consciousness of sin, no idea of their complicity with Satan's power, and whose eyes are screwed tightly shut anyway, who don't want to see what it is you're trying to to show them. So for those reasons, I think that Wilson is right to say this is a step-by-step outline of how to do evangelism. And thus, the way to evangelize is, the goal is not to get through all five steps every time you have the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. The goal is to figure out what step is this person at and how can I move them in a positive direction towards the next step. A much smaller, more attainable goal, something that could possibly be done in a short conversation in a way that communicating the entirety of the Christian faith is most likely not possible. So, what's the point? The point in the sermon, Christ's commission to Paul outlines the process of conversion and tells us how to evangelize. So, Christ's instructions are this step-by-step process that tell us how. How do you figure out where someone is? You ask questions, and then you listen. So what's step one of the five steps? Number one is to open their eyes. That's the first thing Paul is called to do where he goes. What does it mean to open eyes? Well, obviously, it's a metaphorical statement. Paul is not going to walk into a town like Ephesus and find that, man, everyone in Ephesus walks around town with their eyes closed. Paul says, open your eyes, people. Stop running into walls. No, they're metaphorically or spiritually, their eyes are closed. They are not interested in seeing spiritual truth. You show them a spiritual truth, and it makes no impression at all because their eyes are closed to that. They don't care about that kind of thing. So that is 
Paul's first challenge. When you go to your own people or to the Gentiles, you have to get them to want to see spiritual truth. There's no point in presenting beautiful vistas before the person whose eyes are screwed shut. If you have your eyes shut, you can't see them. So how do you get people to open their eyes? How do you get them to the place where they are willing to try to look for spiritual truth? Wilson says, telling people about Jesus is usually one of the worst ways to get someone to open their eyes. You don't want to start there. He talks about how he grew up in a bedroom with a bunch of brothers. And if you have other brothers in your bedroom, one of the things that they enjoy doing at times is coming in and turning on the lights while you're in bed. And if someone turns on the lights on you while you're in bed, what is your first reaction? Well, you yell and scream, Shut off that light! I'm trying to sleep! If your eyes are closed and someone shines the light on you, you don't open your eyes and say, Oh, thank you. I can see so much better now. You say, Shut off the light. I don't want to see. I, I, my eyes are shut for a reason. And the light should be off so that I can keep them shut. You have to have the eyes open, in other words, before you shine the light. Flooding someone with light generally only makes them want to screw their eyes shut more. So how do you instead try to make them want to open their eyes? Wilson suggests cryptic comments. An exhibit A he gives is Jesus with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, you're a divine teacher. How do you do these things? And Jesus doesn't say, you're right, I'm a divine teacher. Jesus says, you must be born again. A cryptic comment. You leave Nicodemus scrambling. What, what? What? Huh? What does that have to do with anything? I just was telling you you're a divine teacher and you're telling me that I need to go find mom and ask if we can do the whole thing all over again. I don't think that's going to go over well, Jesus. says Right, this cryptic comment makes Nicodemus back up and say, wait a second, maybe there's a spiritual truth out there that I'm missing. Maybe I should open my eyes and start to look around. So obviously in our culture, the phrase you must be born again is somewhat well known. Everybody's heard of a born again Christian and to say that particular phrase is like shining the light on them. That just makes them say, oh, I know where this is going. Eyes are shut. Eyes are shut. But Paul was opening eyes in Athens. That was where he stayed in this five-step process. In his speech in Athens, as we saw, he talks primarily about things that were common knowledge to Epicureans and Stoics. He discusses creation, and then he gets them stuck on this point. Why are we worshiping gods who live in handmade temples? A god could build himself a far better temple than anything here in Athens. The Parthenon is majestic. Surely Athena could make something better than the Parthenon for herself. So why are we exactly worshiping gods in handmade temples? That's the point that Paul pushes on all through Acts 17. He's trying to open eyes. He doesn't come to the Acropolis and tell them, you need to hear about Jesus. 
he does get there, right? God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Again, something that they were familiar with that concept. And then at the very end, he says, and he's given assurance of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he finally, at the very end of the speech, once those whose eyes were going to be open were open, he introduces the idea of God saving the world or judging the world through Jesus. But at the beginning of his speech, he doesn't go there. He is seeking to open eyes. So our call is to get people curious. Find out something, some glitch in the matrix, as it were, something that they're aware of that can make them curious and poke at that. If you're talking to someone whose eyes are closed to spiritual things, you need to open those eyes. By the way, therefore, starting evangelism with you're going to hell is absolutely disastrous. If the number one task is to open their eyes, holding up hell is the wrong approach. Nobody can bear to look at hell. Anyone whose eyes are already shut is simply going to screw them shut even tighter and cover them with their hands so that they cannot see this vision of hell because they are not interested. They don't want to look at that. Hell will never open eyes. At least not if you're threatening the person with it. Right? If it's someone who's experienced horrible injustice, you can say, the person who harmed you is in hell. But in terms of opening eyes, don't start with hell. You start with some point of curiosity. Something that makes the person say, you're right. My worldview doesn't make sense here. I believe that Athena is the wonderful goddess of my city, and yet we need to pay taxes to support this building for her. That doesn't make sense. That's what Paul preached. That's what he did to open their eyes. Step two, once their eyes are open, then you turn them from darkness to light. This is where you start to shine Jesus as the light of the world and explain, now that you're interested in spiritual things, let me tell you about Jesus. He's the perfect man who did everything right. right? If they're worried about oppression, focus on how he sets the captives free. If they're worried about moral degeneration, focus on how Jesus is the great lawgiver, the new Moses, who tells us exactly how to live. If they're worried about the environment, focus on him as the restorer of heaven and earth. If they're worried about the family, Focus on Jesus as the bridegroom and the son. If they're worried about the economy, focus on him as the creator of all wealth and the providential provider for the birds and the lilies of the field. If they're worried about whatever, right? Jesus addresses that. So in order to perform well at this stage, in order to turn people from darkness to light, you have to be very familiar with Christ as the light of the world. You need to be able to explain Jesus meets every need and desire of the human spirit. Jesus drives back the darkness in every sector of human existence. I have not met a new believer, as it were, who is in this place here in the U.S. There were many of them, according to my sister, in China. People who wondered, how does Jesus address the conditions of this world. I think there are so few people like that here because, as Aristotle said, philosophy begins with wonder. And 
we have talking points and explanations shoved down our throats from such an early age. People don't have time to wonder. But those who do wonder, those whose eyes are open and are looking around trying to find some light in this world, show them Jesus and say, here is the light. Here is what you need to see. Someone who comes through that stage, someone who sees Jesus as the light of the world, you come next to the middle stage, the hardest of the stages, I think, which is turning them from the power of Satan to God. At this stage, you've shown someone, you've gotten them to open their eyes, you've shown them their sin, or rather you've shown them Christ as the light of the world. Now you have to say, you are complicit in the darkness. You are a slave of Satan. You have been on the side of darkness this whole time, not on the side of light. And that's the moment when people generally, if you've gotten them this far, that's when they cut and run. This is where Paul lost the Jews every time. He got them to open their eyes. He got to tell them about Jesus as the light of the world in the synagogue. And they ate that stuff up. They listened to his biblical exposition all day long. But when he got past the light stage and stopped talking about Jesus as the wonderful solution to everything and started saying, now in order to accept this solution, you have to recognize your own complicity in the darkness. That's when they started to riot and throw him out of the synagogue. When you show people their complicity and say you were part of Satan's kingdom, you were on Satan's team up until this point. They are very tempted to turn tail and run back to the devil they know, quite literally, rather than to move on with the God they don't know. We try to obey Jesus every day, right, as Christians. Therefore, no one should know better than us how hard it is to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. Every time you sin, you're going back to the power of Satan and away from God. It's very, very easy to do. We all do it. And that moment in conversion when someone has to come face to face with this, turning from the power of Satan to God, is a very hard moment. That's why many pastors choose not to preach repentance at all. There is no decisive break with sin. There is no repudiating your past good deeds and bad deeds and saying that was all done as someone who is not yet a servant of Christ. It's easier to just sidestep the whole issue to focus on the light of the world. Things are great. Everything will be positive. God is saving us. Don't worry about anything. But Paul didn't have that luxury. Paul had to preach, you are in Satan's kingdom. You're bound to sin and death. And only by turning from sin can you be saved. Turn from Satan to God. Once someone has done that, once they say, yes, I was wrong, I was in sin, I reject my sin, I repent, I turn to God, the next step is to proclaim forgiveness of sins. So notice that this is step number four. This is not where Paul starts. To start with proclaiming forgiveness of sins is like 
placing a robocall to a bicycle owner and saying, you can renew car insurance. And the bike owner says, I don't have a car. I only have a bike. Someone who has no consciousness of sin, no idea that they were on Satan's team, is someone to whom the message of forgiveness of sins doesn't mean anything. Why would I need my sins forgiven? I'm not in jail. I'm not some kind of international criminal gang leader. I don't do sins. I make a few mistakes once in a while. That's totally different than sin. So, as I said, Paul uses the word forgiveness only once in his gospel proclamation in Acts, back in Pisidian Antioch. This, is, this takes a while before you get someone to the point where they're ready to ask you, so what do I do about my sin? How do I get rid of this? Once they've turned from the power of Satan to God, then you say, there is forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus takes away sin. So you don't start there, but you do get there. And then finally, you get them a place in the church. An inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the final thing Paul has to proclaim is the inheritance. Believe in Jesus and you inherit the world. Not as an individual, but as part of the group. An inheritance, and the inheritance comes among those who are sanctified by faith. You get the inheritance as a church member. That's what Paul had to proclaim. So these last things, under the heading of inheritance, these are the primary topics of ongoing ministry within the church. People whose eyes are open, who have turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, who understand forgiveness of sins, need to camp out here on these last three, that salvation is a communal thing. That you are saved, you get the inheritance in company with God's people. And the church demands holiness. The inheritance comes among this group of people who are being sanctified. If you stop, if you want to stop sinning, you have to enlist help. You won't stop on your own. But help is sitting all around you. That's what the church is. It's a sanctification club. We are sanctified by faith in Jesus. And the words here make it clear that sanctification is not just individual, but communal. It is the church, the group, that is the object of the sanctification. Those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus says. So, outside the church is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Even if you get people through the end of step four and their sins are forgiven, if they're not among those who are sanctified on a regular basis, there is not a regular or ordinary way for them to receive an inheritance in Christ. That's why church is important. That's why we're here. Because we believe that salvation comes to us in the church. That's what Paul had to proclaim. And that was his goal then, to start churches wherever he went. Not just get a lot of people saved and move on, but get them into an ongoing institutional format called the church. Then the final word here is faith. They're sanctified by faith in Christ. 
And that is the ongoing topic. No matter where you're at in the Christian life, you need faith in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a Christian. And therefore, that's the end of of Paul's commission. Paul, get out there and proclaim faith in Jesus. Tell people to believe in me. They can do it. Once they've turned, opened their eyes, turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, once their sins are forgiven and they've gathered with those who are being sanctified, they need to keep believing. So what is the commission? It says, Paul, you're going to start with a willful, obstinately blind individual, someone whose eyes are tightly shut. By following these steps, you end with a holy, faith-filled church member who enthusiastically participates in the body. These are the five steps that Jesus gave to Paul. Now, I didn't do this work, but it would be interesting to go through the book of Acts and try to identify each of these steps in the ministry of Paul. I'm sure you could find plenty of evidence uh, for all five of them. This is what Paul did. It's what Jesus told him to do. And as we saw in Isaiah 42, it's like what Jesus himself did. That ministry of going to the blind, opening their eyes, shining the light on them, bringing them into the kingdom, and proclaiming forgiveness of sins, getting them a place among those who are sanctified. (coughs) So, what is our calling? We need to understand that these are the steps. More than that, we need to share the good news. Talk to people where you go, where you are, and find out where they're at. Pray like heaven and see if you can say the thing that will help them move toward the next step. Whether that's opening eyes, turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, or even someone towards the end of the ladder, proclaiming forgiveness of sins, or helping them with holiness which we'll do for our fellow church members here. All of these are steps that are important in bringing someone from being a willfully blind individual to a faithful, obedient, forgiven church member. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We know that we're not particularly gifted in evangelism, And we're tempted frequently to not even try. To not know what to say or how to say it or when to say it and then the opportunity is gone and oh well and we sort of hope another one doesn't come along too quickly. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us away from that. Help us to grow into people who are familiar with these steps and who are able by the power of your Spirit to open eyes, to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to proclaim forgiveness of sins, and to get people a place to receive that inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son. Lord, help us. We need your assistance, so we beg for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.